0: Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. We always have silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that whenever... A believer in the Lord Jesus Christ sins, he doesn't lose his salvation, but it does break fellowship with his heavenly Father. So we have a provision to recover fellowship and to restore the filling of the Spirit called simply confession of sin. We just admit our sins in privacy of prayer to the Father and instantly we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness and we have the filling of the Spirit to enable us to focus, concentrate, understand his words. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're very thankful that we can be here this evening to study your word. As the psalmist said, your word refreshes our soul. It is a Uh, Fortress, It's a bulwark for us. Your word gives us absolute truth. It is the light in which we see all light, and it is the framework within which we are able to understand and interpret everything within your creation. Father, we thank you for the times that we've had this last week and the busyness of the season, but yet we have had time to focus on the birth of our Savior. Be reminded that you entered into history for the purpose of redeeming us and to redeem creation and father we pray that as we study your word which is a vital part of that process that we can understand these things and that we would come to a greater understanding of the scope of your plan for human history we pray this in christ's name amen well we are in our study in hebrews we are in hebrews chapter 8 And uh, we're not going to stay there for very long right now because of the nature of this particular passage. Just make sure all the screens, everything's working. In Hebrews 8, 6 through 8, the writer of Hebrews is transitioning from a discussion about the significance of Christ's present high priestly ministry, that he has a unique priesthood, built on the order of an ancient Gentile royal priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, it's different from the priesthood of the Mosaic law. It's unrelated to the Mosaic law because the Mosaic law was viewed from its inception as a temporary law. Therefore, the qualifications... For priesthood in the Mosaic law were related to the tribes of Israel and were related to the genetic relationship to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. In contrast to that, the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ is a royal high priesthood. After the order of Melchizedek, it is a priesthood that is not related solely to Israel, but a priesthood that is related to all mankind. Jesus Christ began to function in his royal high priesthood when he ascended to heaven. In the events of his last days on earth, we have his crucifixion uh, in fulfillment of the Old Testament type of the Passover where they the Jews would sacrifice a lamb that was without spot or blemish, and that goes went all the way back and looked back to their exodus when they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. That imagery of the Lamb that was without a spot or blemish was an image of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord first appeared to John the Baptist at the beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Jews would understand that to be an allusion to the uh, Passover Lamb. Later... In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul refers to Christ as our Passover. So as part of his priestly ministry, he offers himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sins, where he pays the penalty for our sins on the cross. Then he's in the grave for three days, three nights. He ascends on the day of firstfruits, everything in fulfillment of specific feast days, and types in the Old Testament all part of the uh, array of predictions prophecies in the Old Testament at least a 100 that were precisely fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ at the first advent he is resurrected on that day, on the feast of first fruits as the first fruits of those who have victory over death he has a new body new resurrection body appears to his disciples with many convincing proofs over the subsequent uh, weeks. Uh, He's on the earth for uh, 40 days before he ascends. There's a 10-day period following his ascension before the day of Pentecost when the present church age begins. At the ascension, he physically ascends, as we've studied, through the heavens to the throne of God, to a specific destination, ...to the throne of God in what the Bible describes as the third heaven... ...the first heaven being the atmosphere around the earth... Second heavens, the stars, the universe... ...and the third heaven is the throne of God. He ascends to the throne of God where he is presently seated. The Latin word was sessionum... ...which is became a technical word in theology for the session of Christ. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is not yet on his throne. The throne of David is prophesied in the Old Testament but he is seated waiting the deliverance of the kingdom by uh, the father to him that deliverance of the kingdom comes when the lord when god the father transfers to the lord jesus christ judgment as per john chapter 5 when jesus said all judgment would be given to him that's the imagery we see and have been studying as a background in our sunday morning series in revelation in revelation chapter uh, chapter 4 and 5 when the lamb uh, who was slain, uh, is the only one worthy to come forward and open the 7 seal scroll. So he is currently, Jesus Christ is currently in session at the Father, functioning in his high priestly ministry, we've studied, as an intercessor for believers, standing as our advocate, uh, 1 John 2, 2, defending believers accused of, of sin by Uh, Satan and he, of course, every time Satan accuses a believer of sin, Jesus says, well, that sin was paid for on the cross. It's paid in full. And so the fact that he has this new position, the writer of Hebrews has argued that a new priesthood necessitates a new covenant. And as we've studied so many times in the past, a covenant is a contract, and God has... Uh, the theologians use the word condescended i 'm not specifically in favor of that word it 's not my, I'm not the best. He limits himself. He's willing to accommodate himself to the finite nature of his creatures, and from the beginning of time, God has structured his relationship to man within these legal documents called covenants or contracts. And so we come to the eighth final contract. Uh, in history, which is the new covenant. And that's the subject of Hebrews uh, that the writer is going into here in Hebrews 8, 6-8. He says, but now he, the Lord Jesus Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator, that is, the go-between of a better covenant, better than the old temporary covenant of the Mosaic law, which has been enacted, that is, this new covenant has been enacted on better promises for if that first covenant had been faultless and the implication there with the second class condition is that it wasn't it was had problems because it was a it was a temporary document the sacrifices didn't permanently pay for sin it did not uh, solve the spiritual problem it simply foreshadowed how it would be solved if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion sought for a second and then his Point is, for finding fault with them, he, that is God the Father, says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So we get our introduction to this covenant in the following verses of Hebrews 8, 9 and following. But before we get there, there are some other Things that we need to study in relationship to this new covenant: Who is the covenant for? Who are the covenant partners? And uh, what is the extent of the new covenant? How do we benefit today from this from this new covenant? Remember, as I pointed out last time, I went through several points related to. Uh, some summary principles related to the nature of a covenant, that it was a legally binding obligation of God to man. It was a pledge from God to man to fulfill certain promises which he had made. It is a legally binding contract. That's, if you want word substitution, every time you hear the word covenant, just substitute contract, and uh, it can be between two parties who are equal to one another or one who is superior, who is imposing it, on an inferior, and that's the nature that we have with divine, with divine covenant. So this is a legal contract, and each one of these contracts describes what God's responsibility is, what he is going to do, what man's responsibility is, and what will happen to man if he fails in that responsibility, and then God comes in afterwards with plan B. And this is the final covenant in the course of the covenant. So let's just review these eight biblical covenants. Now, always keep in mind that there is a theological system that was developed among the uh, Calvinistic, Reformed theologians in Europe in the 17th century that became known as covenant theology. And the covenants in covenant theology are not, The biblical covenants. Everybody believes in the biblical covenants because they're in the Bible. It's the, these theological extrapolations that Calvinism developed in the 17th century that, uh, you don't find those in the Bible. And those covenants were a covenant of grace, a covenant of redemption, a covenant of works, and that's just a theological extrapolation. So we're just focusing on the covenants described in the Bible. The first three covenants are Gentile covenants. A Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. Some people don't understand that, so it's a, to me it's a statement of the obvious, but the Bible looks at two people. You have Jews and you have Gentiles, Jews and everybody else. So uh, in some sense, God favors one race, but because he has a plan and a purpose for those particular people. and We live in an era today when one of the most horrible things you can be called is a racist, that is, if you operate on human viewpoint, And so when anybody's going to favor any group simply on the basis of race, that's racism that automatically makes them evil. See how that has blasphemous implications. God favors Israel. They're the apple of his eye, and he favors the Jews above all people, not that they're perfect, but because he has a plan. His redemptive and and revelatory plan uh, operates through Israel. But the first covenant... Is the Edenic covenant? Sometimes I call this the creation covenant. It's outlined in Genesis 1:27 to 28. Man is to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the the beasts of the field, and man, male and female, are created in the image and likeness of God to be His representatives, vicegerents, ruling over all creation. This covenant has a number of stipulations thereto guard the garden, they're to work the garden. They are to Adam is to name all of the animals. The woman is created in order to be his assistant, in order to be his aider, to help the man in fulfilling the God given responsibilities that he has as God's representative. We live in a world today where uh, in human viewpoint Uh, The feminist movement comes along and says well to say that women are to help the wife is to help the husband in fulfilling his God given responsibilities is demeaning to women and this is a horrible thing once again it's just this horrible antiquated patriarchal uh, Christian thing that's uh, That's Neanderthal, so we need to get rid of it. The reality is that this word azer, this this is the great thing about the Bible. Everything hangs together and complements one another. But you have to take the Bible as a whole as being the word of God. And everywhere else in the Bible that you have the word azer used, the person who is the azer is God. God is the helper of man. So if azer is a demeaning role, as per the feminists, then that is a statement about the nature of God, that God would be uh, in a demeaning role as an azer. So you see, everything ultimately can be pushed back to some kind of statement about the nature of God. So when uh, the feminists come along with their propaganda and say women don't need to be helpers to the husband, then they're making a theological statement and blaspheming God because the underlying presupposition is that being a helper is a negative thing, and yet the only other uh, person... In the Bible, who's an azer is God. What a glorious thing to be an azer. That's a godlike thing. So the Edenic Covenant comes crashing down when man violates the one prohibition not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's at the fall. And so God goes to plan B and there's a revision to the covenant. He has a codicil that comes in and there are going to be certain stipulations. Man was to... Rule over the animals, but the the woman listened to an animal, and so an animal is the one who brought the temptation and deceived her and so now there 's going to be a new relationship with the animals animals prior to the fall were uh, herbivores they were omniv- they were um, uh, herb- herbivores they were grass eaters but after after the fall, some become flesh eaters because now there's death there's violence that enters in uh, the woman was to uh, the man and the woman were to multiply and fill the earth and it was going to be it was supposed to be a completely wonderful thing with nothing nothing negative but now the woman is going to have pain in childbirth a reminder of the uh, fall, the curse of the fall, the man who was to guard and take care of the garden now the gar- the ground is going to produce Thorns and thistles, and there's going to be uh, li- a laborious uh, work involved in uh, in pr- production from the soil. That the soil is now going to fight man, and so now labor becomes toilsome, and he uh, lives by the sweat of his brow. And uh, all of this is defined. As the Adamic covenant spelled out in genesis three fourteen through nineteen, but even in the midst of that covenant, there is the proclamation of grace that the serpent is going to be crushed by the seed of the woman, and this is a, a prophecy of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come to defeat Satan and reestablish that rule of man over creation when he returns at the second coming. "...as the God-man." And so as the greater son of David, the greater son of Adam, he will establish a kingdom ruled by a man, the God-man, and bring the earth back to what God originally intended it to be. But as man developed from Adam, there was sin and disobedience. Men revolted against God, rebelled against God. Evil multiplied itself across the face of the earth... God needed to bring judgment upon the earth because there was also a, an invasion by the sons of God, which is a term for angels. There were demons who invaded sexually, seeking to destroy the genetic purity of the human race to block the seed of the woman. So there was a flood. And then in Genesis 9, God gives uh, the second revision of the original creation covenant. Each of these covenants, man is still supposed to uh, multiply, fill the earth. There's similarities, but each sphere of responsibility gets modified because because of sin and because of judgment. So under the Noahic covenant, now there's going to be uh, uh, delegation of judicial responsibility to man so that man in Genesis 9 is now responsible for policing uh, Criminal behavior. And man's life is precious because every human being is in the image of God. And so God says, whenever man sheds man's blood, man uh, shall shed his blood, the criminal's blood, indicating that human beings now have judicial responsibility to adjudicate criminal action and to execute those who commit murder and this is the basis for human government it's the basis for law in human society it's the basis for establishing the whole uh, principle of of human government there is a promise given with the Noahic covenant that this god will not destroy the earth by water again and <clears throat> this is going to be symbolized by a bow in the sky, a rainbow which is associated with with God's presence in many other passages and that rainbow is a constant reminder that God will never again destroy the earth by fire, I mean by water. He will destroy it by fire. It's also a reminder that as long as you continue to see rainbows, just remember that means you're still supposed to execute criminals. The death penalty has not gone out. It also means because it's in the Noahic Covenant that the eating of meat is authorized for human beings. And so that means that you're authorized to go have a good steak and good prime rib. And you better do it now because the implication here is that when the millennial kingdom comes, we won't be doing that. Now my personal opinion is that God's going to create something like that's going to taste just like a good rare prime rib. But there won't be the killing of animals, so get your hunting done now. Go out and eat all the steak you can because we'll change when we go into the millennial kingdom. It'll be a new, uh, new civilization. But until then, the rainbow reminds you that you can go hunt, you can eat steak, you're supposed to execute criminals, and God's not going to destroy the earth by water again. See, all that's just packed into that, that one covenant. Now, after the Noahic Covenant, time went by, man failed again. And so God had to set up a new system. And now, he, instead of working through the human race in its entirety, God decided he's going to work through one specific family. And so he goes to the family of Shem, the third son of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and one of his descendants, Abraham. And he calls out Abraham, who is a believer already, in Ur of the Chaldees, and he gives him a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and there are three provisions. God promises to give him a a, a specific piece of real estate, which is uh, much larger than the current nation of Israel, but it's in that, that's a part of it, part of that land grant, and it will extend from the uh, river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and cover all the area of uh, much of modern Lebanon, Israel, Syria, Jordan, which is the true Palestinian state. Don't forget that. In 1948, the original land grant that was, land that was supposed to go to Israel in the Balfour Declaration back in 1918 had been chopped up many times through the 1930s. And instead of giving all the land, which is today Jordan and Israel to the Jews, the decision was made in the 30s and 40s to only give a little bit of the land to the west of the Jordan to Israel, and the rest would go to the Arabs. That means Jordan is the Palestinian state. You don't believe Arafat's lies and propaganda that uh, they have rights to land on the west side of the Jordan. They don't. The Arabs were given the land on the east side of the Jordan, and the Jews were given the land on the west side of the Jordan. But, of course, the UN can't get anything right. Uh, UN is just the latest manifestation of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, is a great failure at this time, which is why God had to work through Abraham. So there's three provisions in the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. Now, each of these is then expanded in subsequent covenants to the Jews. There's the land covenant or the real estate covenant, sometimes called the Palestinian Covenant, because the term Palestinian used to mean Jewish. That's why the Palestinian regiment that served in the British Army in World War II was an all Jewish regiment. Did not have any Arabs in it. None of none in fact the only relative of Arafat that was uh uh, operational at the time was the Mufti of, Jeru- of, of Jerusalem who continued to, continuously uh, went to Berlin to encourage Hitler to kill all of the Jews and to help him uh, structure the, the final solution. And it was the Mufti of Jerusalem that was uh, Arafat's uncle who originated uh, all the terrorist activity in the Middle East. So you have the term Palestine, as I showed, what was it, Sunday? Talked about that, that um, uh, or one time last week, we were talking about, uh, no, it was two weeks ago, spiritual warfare. Uses the word in th- that our struggle is not against flesh and blood in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. And the word there for struggle is based on the root, uh, Greek root, pale, P A L E, which means to wrestle or to struggle. ...which is the root for, pal, uh, for Palestine. The term Palestine was first given to the land of Israel by the ancient Greeks. It was a wordplay. Palestine sounded like Philistine, but notice it's a puh and not a fa. And the, the, uh, it was called Palestine because uh, the root word meant wrestler. Jacob was the one who wrestled with God at Peniel in Genesis... And so the Greeks got a great laugh about that, that they were going to call it Palestine, the land of the wrestler, Israel, Jacob, and it would sound like the Philistines. So now we're still plagued with that, and the modern so-called Palestinians want everybody to think that their name comes from the Philistines and that they have an ancient right to the land. Once again, it's just the devil's propaganda. So you have the land promise, you have the second covenant that expands the Abrahamic covenant, the seed covenant, the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel 7, where God promises that David will have an eternal descendant upon his throne, and then the final breakout covenant of the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant we're studying, the new covenant. Now the only other covenant that I haven't listed is the conditional or temporary covenant of the Mosaic covenant, which is given in Exodus 20, uh, chapters 20 through 40. So this gives us the covenantal structure that we find in the Bible. Now let me skip down a little bit. Here we have the Abrahamic covenant, three segments, the land covenant, land seed and blessing, the land covenant, Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel 7, developing the seed, and then the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is just the core passage. It's the only uh, New Covenant passage that actually uses the word New Covenant, but there are other passages. The Davidic covenant also had three elements, the eternal, a promise of an eternal house, the promise of an eternal kingdom, and the promise of an eternal throne. This sets up the background for understanding the new covenant. The land covenant develops the land promise, the Davidic covenant develops the seed promise, and the new covenant develops the worldwide blessing promise. So last time we went through this fairly quickly. Uh, you may not get all the scriptures written down, but we're going to go through each of these To see what they teach us about the New Covenant, so you'll eventually get them. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is the central passage for the New Covenant. And if you compare that with Isaiah 49, 8, 54, 10, 55, 3, 59, 21, 61, 8 through 9, uh, Jeremiah 32, 37 to 41, 32, 39 through 40, uh, that's that's a redundancy there. That's in the same passage. I need to correct that. Ezekiel 11:19, Ezekiel 16:60 60 to 63, Ezekiel 18:31, Ezekiel 34:25, Ezekiel 36:25 to 28, Ezekiel 37:21 20, to 28, Hosea 2:17 to 20, and Amos 9:13 through 15. All of these passages tell us something about the new covenant. The covenant is between God as party of the first part and the house of Judah and the house of Israel as party of the second part. Now any contract is between two parties. You sign your mortgage; it's the agreement, and uh, the mortgage agreement is between you and the mortgage company. The mortgage company's party of the first part; you're party of the second part. You sign a contract with your with Visa or with Mastercard or whatever credit card you have, it's the same kind of thing. There's certain provisions in that covenant, and those provisions have to do with uh, interest rates, uh, time periods, other things like that. Your next door neighbor may have a credit card, and his credit rate, his credit rating may give him a different interest rate. But just because he has a different interest rate, doesn't give you the right to tell your credit card company that, that his 10% is better than your 12%, so you're only going to pay them at his rate because you can't apply terms to somebody else's contract to your contract. And see, that's what happens in the study of Scripture is we have these contracts with Israel, and people want to come along and say that that applies to the church when the church isn't a party to the covenant. So when we look at the New Covenant, the person's party, the first part is God. party the second part is the house of Judah and the house of Israel. There is never a mention of the church as a party to the covenant. Third, the importance of the New Covenant. It provides for the regeneration of Israel. Remember when Jesus was asked... By the uh, Sadducees, uh, they, they came up with this hypothetical case, always one of my favorites, where they come up with this woman. We have a woman, and she's married to a man, and he dies. She marries a second time, he dies. She marries a third time, he dies. Marries a fourth time, he dies. Marries a fifth time, he dies. Marries a sixth time, and they convene the grand jury. No, he dies. And uh, Mary, as the seventh time, and the Sadducees, who didn't believe in resurrection, says, well, who's, who's, uh, who's, who's going to be your husband in the regeneration? See, that was a term that was used, the regeneration referred to the future kingdom. So that's a key part of this element. Of course, he answered the question and said that ma- people are not going to marry or be given in marriage in the, in the kingdom. So regeneration is a key element. Also, it will be a fulfillment of all the other covenants and promises to them. What is one of the other covenants? So you're not zoning out from too much sugar Christmas. Let's think a little bit. What, would, what is one of the other covenants? Uh, what, what, are one of the, what, is, what does one of the other covenants promise them? Land. Okay, now the importance of this point is that the new covenant is also linked to the fulfillment of the land covenant. Okay, that's important because when people try to come along and say that we're, we we're, have some elements of the new covenant today, I want to know why the Jews aren't in the land. See, they, they try to break these things out and you can't do it. Fourth, there are ten provisions. I went through those last time. I'm not going to repeat them again this time. There are ten provisions which reinforce a unique state of salvation for Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, we're going to study this because it's some people have a little bit of a difficult time with this, and I'll confess I do too because I'm not sure how it works, but I know what the Scripture says, and so we just got to stick with what the Word says. Okay, that's our summary, those first four points, and then we come to a fifth point, which is a confirmation. Uh, God gives other confirmations to this, to the, His covenants, and one of the confirmation passages is in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. So turn with me in your Old Testament to the book of Joel, chapter 2. Joel's towards the end, the last 12... Books in the Old Testament are called the in the Hebrew they were the book of the Twelve, but we call them the Twelve Minor Prophets, not because they're of lesser importance, but because they're shorter books. And they begin with Hosea of Daniel, then Hosea, and Joel, Amos. So Joel is the second of the of the minor prophets. It's written about ninth century BC, about eight hundred BC. So this is very Early. This isn't long after the northern kingdom separates from the southern kingdom. We're studying. I know it's been a while because of the construction schedule and going out of town and Christmas and everything else. But um, uh, remember, in First Kings, there it will be after First Kings nine. This this division, the civil war in Israel, the ten northern tribes will revolt against the Davidic monarchy in the south and establish the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel begins very early to establish a false religion and idolatry as the basis for their uh, nation. Jeroboam the I is the first king in the north, and he will have a golden calf built, and he will say this, just like Aaron did at the time of the uh, Exodus, he'll say this, is uh, the god who brought you out of egypt see historical revisionism is always a part of the establishment of a tyrannical government as soon as you see people starting to rewrite history that this nation wasn't a christian nation there's no christian influence we can't have god in the uh, schools and uh, the founding fathers didn't really know anything about Christianity. As long as you have that kind of revisionism going on, uh, pay attention because people are trying to uh, change the foundation of our government, which is exactly what Jeroboam uh, the I did. And so he establishes these two centers of worship in the north, one in the far north at Tel Dan and one in the south in samaria and he establishes these two places so they don't have far to travel to go to church that's basically the point because we don't want to have to go all the way down to jerusalem and that's in another country now so if we really want to unify we're going to have our our own places and we're going to do it uh, where people don't have to go to much effort to make a sacrifice and worship god so he's already accommodating to the Uh, lust patterns of the people so Joel comes along with a prophecy that's related to the end times how God is eventually going to restore the breach between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom but in doing it there is going to be a cataclysmic judgment called the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord is described in the second chapter of Joel and it is Related to the Great Tribulation, that last seven-year period in Israel's history, uh, it's the period of Daniel's seventieth week. The Day of the Lord becomes a term for the tribulation period, the judgments that we'll be studying on Sunday morning between Revelation 14 and Revelation uh, Revelation 19, and specifically the culmination of those judgments at, at the end, just before the Lord Jesus Christ uh, returns. And so there are, are a lot of parallels in the first part of Joel chapter 2 to uh, what will happen, uh, the, all of the uh, geophysical uh, problems, earthquakes, the problems in astro physical problems, stars, the darkness of the sky, all of these kinds of things are going to go on. There's a call to repentance because God is all would rather people change and turn to him than go through judgment. And then we come to Joel 2:28. Now, this is a very important passage because this is a passage that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2 on the birthday of the church right after the uh, apostles are all standing there and the Holy Spirit descends upon them like flames of fire over each of the eleven uh, disciples and they begin to speak in uh, un- in foreign languages. And they're, the uh, unbelievers that are there, the Jews that are there, they say, what are these guys drunk already? And Peter says, no, it's only the ninth, ninth hour. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Sun's not over the yardarm yet. Nobody's had a drink yet. Uh, this is not... Uh, the result of drunkenness, this is a work of the Holy Spirit, just like Joel said. And then he quotes from Joel, because Joel, and, and, and see the interesting thing is nothing that happened on the day of Pentecost is prophesied in Joel 2. And nothing that Joel says in Joel 2 happens on the day of Pentecost. But what Peter is saying is these, these things that are happening right here are like those events. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit as we go through our study. It gets into some things that are going on today and uh, 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 what I consider to be some wrong, uh, wrong teaching, but we'll, we'll save that for, for next time, where it's a misunderstanding of what, what uh, Peter is saying there in Acts 2. These are crucial passages how to understand the relationship between Joel 2 and Acts 2. And we've studied some of this in the past. If you remember, I went through, uh, when was that, about, oh, I don't know. In the last couple of months, I was teaching on hermeneutics, and we went through the four different ways in which the Old Testament is used in the New Testament based on um, how rabbis tended to quote and apply uh, Old Testament scripture And that comes from some of the study and work that Arnold Fruchtenbaum's done. But we'll step around that right now and just look at these verses. In verse 28, Joel (coughs) 2.28, Joel says, It shall come to pass afterwards, or God is speaking actually. It shall come to pass afterward. After what? After the day of the Lord, after this judgment is completed, the seven-year tribulation period, Church-age believers won't be, go through that. We will be raptured. We'll be taken to heaven before the seven-year tribulation. The seven-year tribulation relates to God bringing Israel to a point of repentance so that they turn to Jesus as Messiah. That's what this is describing. It shall come to pass afterward, after all these judgments, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. That is part of the New Covenant terminology now, we haven't gone into that but in, in Jeremiah 31, but, but when, when Joel writes in the 8th century, he's writing 300 years before Jeremiah specifies the new covenant. So this is one of the first references to what happens at the end of the uh, day of the Lord period when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom and to enact the new covenant. At that time, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. See, in Jeremiah chapter 31, we're told that the key element of the new covenant is that all the nation is regenerated. The Holy Spirit indwells and fills every Jew to the point that no one needs to be taught about God because they have an internal knowledge of God and so there won't be a need for pastor teachers or evangelists among the Jews at all. They will all know God's Word and He will be their God and they will be their people. So this is clearly New Covenant terminology, New Covenant description in Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32 And we continue to read in verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke, all related to the judgments that occur at the end of the tribulation. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. That is that final judgment that culminates in the campaign of, the military campaign of Armageddon. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that passage is quoted by Paul in Romans eleven, which is one of your passages in the New Testament that, that relates to the uh, relates to the New Covenant. In Romans eleven twenty six, Paul says, And so and in this manner, as I'm about to tell you, that's the thrust of the of the Greek hutos there, in this manner all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That is how they will be delivered. And at the end of the tribulation period, what happens, if you know the map of Israel, is at the midpoint of the tribulation, when the Antichrist sets up his statue or sets himself up in the Holy of Holies of the tribulation temple to be worshiped as God, Jesus said in Matthew 24 that when you see this sign, flee to the mountains. Woe to the mother who's pregnant. Uh, woe to the person who's out in the field! Uh, pack up your bags, be ready to flee, and as soon as you see that sign, flee to the mountains. And he's talking about fleeing south into the Judean wilderness, which if you've been there, is desert and wilderness. And then you fl- flee south across uh, the the barren flats south of the Dead Sea and across into the mountainous region around Petra Petra actually was a Nabataean kingdom but you've seen pictures of that if you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark where they went in through the Sikh that long narrow canyon into, uh, into, the, uh, uh, into Petra there where they have the facade of the, of the treasury house and, and um, we had a reenactment of wedding vows for Bob and Roberta right there when we, when we were there and that's that's the northern part and that whole area south of there is this rugged mountainous terrain in fact, this last year when when we were there, we went up <coughs> to the monastery, which is up about fifteen hundred feet higher than that area. We didn't go there the first year, and we walked up there and we kept walking up the trail and walking up the trail, coming around a bend and walking up some more and Finally, we got there, and everybody was resting. And I saw this sign up on the ridge and said, great view this way. Okay, I'll walk up there. Well, when I got to that sign, about 300 yards off across another little valley and up the ridge was another sign that said, great view here. So I walked there. Now I've committed about 600 yards, and I got there, and there's another, about 300 yards off, there's another sign. And that was, that was it. But I kept walking out, and when I got there, you're standing out on this little, little point, and you could, on a clear day, you could probably see 100 miles to Jerusalem. You could probably see the, the Mediterranean. It was a fabulous view, and just to my left was Mount, uh, Mount Hor, and there is a monument on the top of Mount Hor. I don't know how anybody, even a goat, could get from one side to the other, and that's where Aaron's body was buried, and that monument is for, for, uh, For Aaron's body. But it's that rugged area that uh, is not easily attacked. In fact, the Nabataeans who had their kingdom there uh, were not able to be defeated by the Romans until the Romans captured a a turncoat. And he told them how the Nabataeans were able to get water down into Petra because they had carved these channels along the side of the Seek that when it rained, the the runoff coming down the canyon would be collected into these channels and run down the sides of the Seek, and then they had dug out these massive 150,000, 200,000-gallon, what do they call those? Uh, Cisterns. How could I forget that? We saw hundreds of cisterns when we were there. Uh, these 150,000, 200,000 gallon cisterns, and in just, in a one-inch rain, they would collect enough water to support a population there for uh, several tens of thousands, 20, 30,000 people for a year. And those, many of those channels are being reconstructed today by the archaeologists. I think, and so they'll, everything will be functional again when the Jews have to flee there, but but see, they were all covered up. They carved these channels, and then they covered them up so it blended in to the sides of the walls, and the Romans couldn't figure out how these people got water. And once this turncoat told them how they got water, they came in and they they uh, broke these uh, channels so that the water system didn't work anymore, and it took about 10 days, and they uh, captured Petra. Well, that's the area the Jews are going to flee to between there and an area south of there called Basra, And it is there that the Lord, that they are going to, that that the remnant that survives that are believers that have responded to Jesus' warning to flee when you see the sign in the Holy of Holies of the abomination of desolation. It is there that they will call on the name of the Lord. This is what Jesus says at the end of Matthew uh, 23. He's weeping over Jerusalem. He says, I won't come again until you call on the name of the Lord. That's a reference to joel two thirty two so they, they call in the name of the Lord they 'll be delivered, and this is when the the remnant calls on Jesus he comes as the Jewish Messiah delivers them, defeats the Antichrist, and establishes his kingdom, and inaugurates the new covenant when you have this pouring out of the Holy Spirit so in terms of this this uh, a fifth element of the new covenant you have the confirmation in joel uh joel 2 28 to 32 now the new covenant is mentioned in four different verses in the new co- in the new testament just the very fact that we call it the new testament versus the old testament is a recognition of the distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant now, the first two passages talk about the same event. Luke 22:20 20 focuses on what Jesus is saying at the Last Supper when he's celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. We've gone over this numerous times when we have a communion and when I've done a Passover meal reenactment. As, as they go through the Passover meal, there were four different times in the course of the meal when they would take a cup of wine and drink it and each cup signified something different. When Jesus came to the third cup, it was called the cup of redemption and he assigned it new significance, new meaning. And after they had eaten, he took the cup, the third cup, said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is the redness of the wine that was a picture of the shedding of blood and of death. And so the, a covenant was always sealed with a sacrifice. And so the covenant is, is cut. The sacrifice that establishes the covenant is made at the cross. And so when we come to this passage, it is it, it, it seems as if what Jesus is saying is that after I die on the cross, anybody who believes in me is part of the new covenant. But we have to fix this or fit this within the whole framework of biblical revelation. In 1 Corinthians 11.25, Paul is just referring back to that same event in Luke 22.20, and he says in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, I highlighted the word the because in the Greek there's a definite article before kine diatheke. It's he kine diatheke, the new covenant. And so there were those who came along and said, well, we have a definite article here, so this is talking about one specific covenant, but in these other two passages, there's no article. Actually, I misspoke a minute ago when I used the word definite. We have a definite article in English. In Greek, it's just an article because the function of the article in Greek is not merely or it's not only to make the noun definite. A word can be indefinite and have the article, it can be, in, and it can be definite without the article because the article in Greek doesn't function like an article in English. And so when, when you have people who don't understand that come along and translate uh, the Greek, they, they make mistakes. For example, in John 1.1, 1, 1, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God." And the word was God. In the Greek, there's no article before that last use of theos for God. And so you have a group of people known as the Jehovah's Witnesses who came along and said, See, that shouldn't be translated the word was God. It should be translated the word was a God. Because it doesn't have the article. If it had the article, it would be the God, but it doesn't have the article, so it should be a God. But see, in Greek, the absence of the article can be more significant and more definite than the presence of the article. In fact, one of the things that's emphasized when you don't have an article with a, with a noun is that it's emphasizing the quality of the, uh, of the noun or the essence of the noun. So by not having the article, John is making an even stronger statement that the Word was the essence of God. He was full deity. He couldn't say it any stronger. In fact, if he put the article there, it would minimize the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ known as the Word in that that particular passage. So... That's what's going on in these two passages in uh, 2 Corinthians and Hebrews 9. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says, He also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. But see, if you the, the, the translators here put an A in there. And, and the point I'm making, this is just a technical point of Greek grammar, is the absence of the article doesn't mean that you should insert an indefinite English article. It's emphasizing the quality, the essence of the noun that New Covenant represents. So, as servants of New Covenant, it's indicating, it would still indicate the New Covenant. Now, just another little point here. Some of you have been to places in Canada and England, you've heard British English as opposed to American English. And in British English, there are a number of nouns that are inherently definite, and you will hear the British speak of going to hospital. Now, it sounds kind of strange, because they don't go to... We would say, I'm going to the hospital. They'll just say, I'm going to hospital, because they understand the noun is inherently definite. It doesn't need the article with it. I'm going to university. We would say, I'm going to the University. But see, they understand that certain nouns are inherently definite. We do too. God is an inherently definite noun. So we don't pray to the God. We don't put the in front of God in English because we understand God is inherently definite. Well, the same thing is going on here. New covenant is definite without the article because he's emphasizing the quality and the essence and the significance of this new covenant. The same thing's going on in Hebrews. 915 now the reason i make that point is that there have been those and some of you have heard people uh, teach this who say that there're really two new covenants and this is the evidence for a new covenant with the church because it's just it talks about a new covenant indicating that there's another new covenant but again this is a a misuse of greek to try to use it to arrive at that conclusion but that brings us to a very important point that we won't be able to get into uh, tonight, and that is looking at these issues related to whether there's one new covenant or two new covenants. And the conclusion that I've reached after years of studying this, going back, and, and I agree with uh, John Nelson Darby, who was the first systematizer of dispensationalism, that there's only one new covenant, and it's a new covenant with Israel and the church. And, I mean, with Israel only, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and that the church uh, benefits by way of blessing in the same way that in the Old Testament God made a covenant with Abraham and said on the basis of the contract that I have with Abraham, I'm going to bless the Gentiles. In the new covenant, God says on the basis of this covenant, I'm going to establish with Israel. I'm going to bless all the Gentiles, and they'll be saved. So that's how the church comes into it, and we'll get into that in more detail because uh, there's some confusion there, and there's some important things to uh, talk about. So next time we'll come back, we'll talk about this issue of one new covenant, two new covenants, three new covenants, or half a new covenant, whatever. And then we'll start going through all those Old Testament passages to understand the the tremendous dem, spiritual dimension of the new covenant as it will be established in the millennial kingdom with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father thank you for this opportunity to study your word tonight to look at these uh, important aspects for they uh, indicate to us how your plan was set forth from the beginning how you have worked through human history to bring about uh, The the conclusion that will demonstrate your righteousness and your holiness and above all we see your grace in providing a perfect and sufficient salvation for us through the Lord Jesus Christ Father we pray that uh, you would help us as we think about these things to realize that as those who are servants ministers of the new covenant we have a special privilege and special position and significance in this church age we pray this in Christ's name Amen